Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. I'm Matt Zemek. He's Sakhi Now, we still, I got the names wrong intentionally. I haven't talked to Matt in a while. So You're just get... changing things up to be fresh. <laughs> yeah, and let's see if we can still hit our chemistry without much prep notes. We haven't done this in more than three months or maybe even more. We have been in touch, but at uh, this, uh, this forum, we kind of owe an explanation. Uh, you know, a lot of things going have been going on, but we are trying to revive the brand tennis with an accent with more content coming up and uh, hope to be more regular here uh, on this forum. On that note, Matt, how you been? Okay. And yeah, like definitely through Rome and, and Roland Garros into the summer, plenty of stuff. Um, you know, life takes uh, all sorts of directions. But, but the other thing is, Sakib, and you know, we'll we'll talk about this as we go along. But you know, Madrid just did not hit the sweet spot. I think for a lot of tennis fans this season, and and you know, part of it's the two week thing, but also part of it was, you know, without Nadal and Djokovic there to either test Alcaraz or at least uh, offer the possibility of a challenge to Alcaraz. Like the men's, the men's tournament, um, you know, did not rise to the occasion. And I mean, not, that is not to take away anything from uh, Jan Leonard Struff uh, and also Aslan Karatsev, like both tremendous stories. Uh, You know, they were both playing challengers in the month of March. Struff was playing right here in Phoenix, Arizona. You know, at that uh, Arizona Tennis Classic, you know, in the time between Indian Wells and Miami, he was digging around in the challengers, and then he comes uh, to Madrid and he makes a 1,000-point final as a lucky loser, you know, after losing to Karatsev in the qualies, and they, they have a reunion in the semis. Truly a remarkable story. So a very special fortnight for Struff and Karatsev, but we can you know, we can appreciate what they did and still take the bigger view and say, you know, like this was Alcaraz's tournament uh, all the way. Uh, Hatchinoff, you know, put up a fight against him. And it's not as though, like, he just dismantled everybody, but there was always a sense of this was Alcaraz's tournament and nothing ultimately uh, got in his way. Um, So, you know, I just sensed from fans, and I feel a part of this myself, Sakib, Let's have a an Alcaraz Djokovic match. You know, let's we're waiting for these heavyweight battles to emerge, and we'll see if we get one in Rome. We'll see if we get one in Paris. But it's certainly on the men's tennis side. Like we're waiting for something big, and that's really a, a reversal of how it's been for most of the past fifteen years. We could always count on the big matchup, and maybe to an extent, I'm spoiled, and other tennis fans are spoiled by that but i really got that vibe from madrid so i you know i will admit i was very light uh you know in in covering this because you know people just didn't seem to be all that into it but i think rome you know because it doesn't have the weird conditions of madrid uh, and i know rome is going to be two weeks so you know it might hit differently for some but um because madrid is always such an outlier in certain obvious ways 
Uh, I think people are going to be much more into Rome, and so we're going to be definitely covering Rome and the and the road and the and the lead up to Roland Garros. So that that's part of the larger context uh, uh, that we're facing here at Tennis with an accent. Yeah, I mean, you definitely brought up some a lot of uh, good points. Uh, food for thought on Twitter, they've been discussed extensively. When I was in Israel, I asked Kasparud, uh, uh, how would he, uh, how does he take the new 96 play draws in both, you know, uh, or 128 with the buys in both Madrid and Rome? And he gave a very long, long, thoughtful answer. And he was saying, uh, guys like Diego Schwartzman or Taylor Fritz, people who are from not the European continent, if they lose uh, early, not that players do go to America uh, for a six-day trip, but they are now stuck and there are no other tournaments. And uh, so there is definitely plenty of food for thought. I'm sure you would like to weigh in too. Uh, my first initial thought is, look, uh, sporting industry is all about making money. So ATP, what they're doing is they're trying to maximize uh, the co-events uh, along with WTA, where all the stars are shining and they have just extended the draws uh, by you know two extra matches. Still, there's a buy, but... Uh, if you are like ranked below, say the 56 cutoff draw, you do get invited. And some from players' perspective, it's a good way to enter these tournaments. But at the same time, there's a flip side. Like Miguel Siebra's Estoril Open, uh, they totally you know lost out in this race because they are now slotted in a very uncomfortable slot in the calendar right after Miami. So they will not be getting premier uh, big signups unless a Casper or Hubi Harkach comes there because someone's low on matches, someone's coming after an injury. They'll always be that player. But there was a much better schedule for them and Munich when they both these tournaments were slotted right after Monte Carlo. Someone loses early, you can go hone your skills. But straight from the hard coach, a lot of people would just go back to Monte Carlo uh, for one week and skip the Houston Estoril uh, week. So that's one angle. But the other angle is ATP is trying to maximize with TV rights and tickets. Uh, that that's, that comes to mind, and there's definitely nothing wrong with it. But overall, fans also are reluctant to embrace change because the Miami Indian Wells stretch, according to many, is a long drawn out, like one month of March. And uh, maybe I'm one of those fans, like when I, I resist change. But here, I don't see... Uh, now, it's not just a matter of resisting change or being stubborn. I don't see much upside. And then there are other angles, like, you know, if you are having a two-week tournament, why does a match start at 11 p.m., which it happened more than a few times, and players are still on court, like 1 a.m. Madrid time. So organization-wise, I don't know who's paying attention to these details. Uh, it's a pretty, looks like it's a pretty rigid way of doing things. So before we talk about uh, Sabalenka and Alcaraz and the other finalists, uh, what's your take? Because this has been the uh, topic that's been pretty much pretty hot on Twitter uh, as far as discussions go. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot to unpack here, Sakib. And I would start with uh, the point that, you know, the larger concept of having a two week tournament is a good thing. And now, you know, people will say like, should Madrid be a two week tournament? That's one conversation, but, uh, but in terms of the larger, just taking it on its own, should more, uh, 1,000 point tournaments uh, be two week affairs, and I would say yes. And the reason for that is that you get larger paychecks for more professional players, right? And like this has been something that we've discussed in in previous years when d- exploring, you know, should tennis players have a union, and you know how how economically sustainable is a pro tennis career when you're ranked 
outside the top 50, outside the top 100, outside the top 150. You know, it is it should be a goal of tennis as a sport to provide, you know, a good uh, living, uh, to provide a good you know return on players investments if they are in the top uh, 200. You know, if you are like, just think about it. If you are the 200th best best person in the world at any given job, that ought to translate into a lot of money. That should translate into, you know, substantial payment that, you know, easily covers your expenses, that gives you a very comfortable life. But we know that if you are a number 200 tennis player, you are living on the margins. You are not living comfortably. And so the whole point of having a 96-player draw over two weeks, or at least a week and a half, is that that means more first-round matches with higher paychecks compared to a you know losing in the qualies. Um, that means more and, and bigger paychecks for more players outside the top 50, outside the top 75. That is definitely a good thing. We, we need to be clear about that. Now, the problem that you get, uh, or at least one of the problems that you get, Sakib, is that, uh, and, and a reader made this point, and it's a really good one, I hadn't thought about it, but the clay tournaments might not be the best candidates for two weeks. And why is that? Well, it's because, you know, roughly three-fourths, 80% of the tour is played on hard courts, all right? So for you know, the, the, the three-fourths, the 75, 80% of the year when you're playing on hard courts, you know, it's such a common surface that, you know, if for, for uh, players to have more, expended, more extended uh, weeks or tournaments, I should say, on hard courts, then, you know, that's, if they get, if they lose early, you know, there will be more hard court tournaments for them to play in, maybe not necessarily that next week, but overall, you know, over the full uh, tennis calendar uh, from January through November, there will be so many more uh, hard court opportunities for them. So losing early in a two week uh, hard court tournament, such as Indian Wells or Miami, you know, it doesn't carry the same penalty that it does for losing early in a two week tournament on clay. Because as you pointed out, like you don't have Estero in, in late April, uh, you don't have other tournaments in their preferred slots. So if you lose early in Madrid or Rome, you're not going to have many chances uh, over the rest of the year to play on clay. Now you could play post Wimbledon clay but that in Europe, uh, you know, in, in late July, going into very early August. That is kind of a different animal, and certainly you don't those none of those are one thousand point tournaments. So, you know, I would I would be inclined to say that uh, like this works for hard courts because you have so many more hard court tournaments uh, at the 1000 point level, but you don't have that uh, on clay. And so that imbalance uh, in the tour and, and, and on the tour calendar like that should influence uh, these decisions. So so that that is a really big sticky point. And here's another thing, Sakib. Here's another big problem that. It's not so much about Madrid being two weeks and Monroe being two weeks, but it's also another, just another complication connected to having these two-week 1,000-point tournaments. The rankings don't turn over. The rankings don't turn over in the middle of that two-week sequence 
And so players who win at the challenger level, and you know, Andy Murray won a challenger uh, this weekend, players who win matches, they're not getting credited in a timely manner for any rankings improvements that they might make. And that makes them ineligible for various cutoffs at subsequent tournaments. So they don't really get the full benefit of one week's uh, play and one week's results. So you would think that tennis should be able to adjust there. And we need to have more flexibility in terms of, you know, if your live ranking improves uh, during uh, a two-week play tournament, that you get a rankings boost. I mean, you get a, not not just, not really a rankings boost, but if you do boost your ranking, that gives you instant, immediate eligibility for various tournaments the next week instead of the rankings being frozen. You know, you have to wait until after Madrid is fully completed. Um, there needs to be some change there. There definitely needs to be some some change uh, in terms of how that larger system works. So, Saka, I mean, as you can see, there are lots of complications and nuances, and I don't think it's as simple as, well, should it be two weeks or one? No, you really got to think a lot of things through in terms of the details of this and how they're handled. Um, and, and so that that all needs to go into a, a fuller discussion and examination of these processes. But of course, you know, tennis being tennis, there's no central governance. You know, there's no, you know, strong central leadership. And so, I, you know, I don't have any confidence that these kinds of details are going to be given the honest assessment they deserve and require. Uh, but the flip side, I think Gil Gross, or someone who's pointing this out on Twitter, uh, is uh, there are like uh, ample challenger events that benefit uh, from the big names, like you mentioned, you know, Struff playing in Arizona and Monfils and Berrettini played there too back in uh, March. Similarly, Andy Murray won his third cha- career challenger title today in, in France, I believe. And then uh, Hugo Amber, who's trying to build his ranking up, who's currently 77, most probably wouldn't have appeared in a challenger tournament. He bagged his, I think, uh, challenger title. Jordan Thompson won. So there are a lot of uh, uh, somewhat top 100 players or players who would be playing main draw events in a Rome or Madrid if it wasn't a two-week stretch. So that is probably uh, a benefit benefit of this. But we'll we'll talk about more, and let's, I think, get into uh, the finals. So let me throw this back to you. Arena Sabalenka is is quietly, uh, quickly, not quietly, becoming the challenger we all needed after the departures of Ash Barty and uh, Naomi Osaka going on mat leave. So now this is... Is this a rivalry we've been waiting for? And is she kind of, you know, is she building it up to the next level? Because she's won in Australia, I think lost a Stuttgart final not too long ago to Sviantec and played a great final yesterday, which was, a, I think, a, one of the better finals this year in three sets. So what do you make of Sabalenka's rise? And is Iga still the player to beat Roland Garros with three weeks to go? I mean, to me, I think they have to be seen as co-favorites. I I don't think you can just say that Sviantec, as impressive as she has been uh, at Roland Garros in recent years, winning in 2020 and then also in 2022, I don't think you can just give her a natural automatic advantage because this is a new and different and better version of Arena Sabalenka. Now, there is there are things to sort out here. One is that, you know, in Madrid, with the high bounce 
And, you know, people often, when people talk about differences in surface and differences in playing conditions, you know, I think the first thing that most tennis fans think about is, does the court play fast or slow? That usually seems to be the starting point in discussions of differentiations between and among playing surfaces. But for me, Sakib, I think the most salient aspect of differentiations in playing surface is less about the speed. Not that it's irrelevant, like that's certainly important. Um, but to me, the big, the bigger thing is the height of the bounce and where the strike zone is located for players' ground strokes. You know, are they hitting balls at shoulder level? Are they hitting balls at waist level? Are they hitting balls at, at you know the at shin level, uh, thigh level? Uh, that to me is is uh, really the thing that most uh, repeatedly emerges in terms of affecting a player's comfort on court, comfort hitting shots, comfort uh, hitting a big ball cleanly and consistently. And so in Madrid, you get a higher bounce and a higher strike zone. And I certainly think that plays into uh, Sabalenka having success there. Um, so you, you could make the argument that Sviantec should not be terrifically concerned, like not in a unique or especially profound way that, you know, because she will get a truer, more natural bounce with a lower strike zone uh, in Rome and Paris. So I, 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 I agree that like Sviantec should not be worried, but I also think that Sabalenka's evolution as a complete tennis player, like we're, we're seeing it, you know, and, and, and does, does Sabalenka win that match? Uh, a year ago, I don't think so. I think she's a much more evolved player. Um, not that she doesn't still have her hit and miss moments, not as though she won't still make errors when going for broke, but you don't see quite as many of those errors. And you also see, you know, when things go south for her in past years, she would just go off the rails and she wouldn't be able to re- bounce back, regain top form. This year, and in this match on Saturday, you know, when Sabalenka would have a rough 10 minutes, she would be able to fight back. Uh, It's the resilience that marked her win over Rabakina uh, in the Australian Open final. And it's really marked her whole 2023 season that when she gets punched in the mouth, she has an answer for it. Uh, And she doesn't get down on herself the way she used to. There's emotional maturity. There's also physical uh endurance like she's able to run more play better defense keep the ball on the court that was also part of her australian open uh championship her game is just more uh you know contained uh and kept together there isn't a sense that it's all gonna fall apart uh the way it used to be for her um she's managing many different aspects of her game like i don't think it's one thing it's the collective that she's made improvements in her defense in her running in her mental game uh in her match management it's a little bit of everything and because Sabalenka is now establishing such a high floor as a player I don't think I really don't put her I mean I would okay if you ask me I would say Sviantec is still the favorite for Roland Garros but I don't think by it's by a large margin uh, I think that Sabalenka is right there with her, basically, basically on the same plane. Like, you know, it's like a 52-48 uh, type of thing. And Rabakina 
you know, also has a very, very realistic shot uh, in Paris. Like, I don't say, I don't think she's way below either Sviantec or uh, Sabalenka. I think that the story of, of women's tennis through Madrid in 2023 is that you have three players, Sviantec, Sabalenka, Rabakina, all establishing themselves as elite players. They have all performed like elite players. They've all displayed the consistency of elite players. They've all gone through matches and tournaments where you, know, you think they're going to lose. You think their fuel tank is going to run out. And then they step up their game. They show fight. They show belief. They show problem-solving capabilities. And they win matches that, you know, more ordinary players or, you know, less confident players would lose. So all three of them really in my mind, Saka, but at the top of their game, if you want to make Sviantec the favorite, fine. I don't have an argument. My argument would simply be there is not a wide gulf uh, from Sviantec to either Sabalenka or Rabakina. It's really those three and then everyone else. It's not Sviantec, then Sabalenka, Rabakina, and then everyone else. It's the, all three of them really deserve to be in a top tier, all three of them are playing uh, like stars. Um, you know, we had uh, Sabalenka and Sviantec here in Madrid, as we did in Stuttgart. But let's remember that we had Rabakina uh, in the uh, made both the Indian Wells and Miami finals uh, with and Sabalenka, you know, meeting her in Indian Wells, and of course we had the Rabakina Sabalenka Australian Open final. And you could say, oh, well, that was on hard courts, but like Rabakina's game, uh, like I don't see any real problem in terms of it translating uh, to clay. Like she made, she's made the Roland Garros quarterfinals before, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, and like you know, big hitters on clay. Like eat, forget about the big three. You know, Djokovic, Nadal. Like Robin Soderling uh, made made a Roland Garros final. Uh, you know, like we've seen big hitters being able to function on uh, Chatrier. And, and, and on Parisian clay, just fine. I don't think there's anything about Rabakina's game that's, you know, doesn't really translate to clay, especially since Rabakina has be, become, like Sabalenka, such a markedly improved uh, competitor this season. So to sum up, there's not a significant gulf between Spiontek and Sabalenka or Rabakina. All three of them are at the top. And so, you know, we know that Sviantec and Sabalenka as the top two, they are going to be on opposite halves of the Roland Garros draw. And so the really big question is, which side does Rabakina fall on? That's going to ultimately uh, shape a lot of the storylines and, and who has a path to, to derail uh, any of the top three at the French Open. Yeah, I think I agree with the larger point you made, but... Uh... You know, we've always had this talk on tennis Twitter, right? Whatever happens in Madrid usually isn't an indicator of, uh, you know, uh, what can happen in Roland Garros, except, you know, of course, Nadal and a few uh, proven players like Djokovic. Uh, Federer also won Madrid, you know, on the women's side. Uh, you know, we've had some, like, uh, players like uh, Halep. I don't know what her record is, but Madrid is a good indicator if you are a good play court player, but a lot of time it's also an outlier. So my point is in 21 when Sabalenka won Madrid, the talk was about Barty at that point. And, 
and you can Shuantek and other players and uh, Anand and I were talking about this and he said look uh, I'm not convinced yet that Sabalenka could do well in Paris and you know he even predicted her to lose in first round and she did lose in th- lose in third round so I think your overall point ties in here because she's won the Australian Open now she's bringing that winning attitude right she's problem solving she's sticking to her guns but she's not going away she's you know she's putting this week in week out world class you know fighting mentality which translates to winning so i think the larger point ties in but if had she not won in australia i think you know and then some would say why are you tying in like you did hardcore tennis to clay court tennis but i think the evolution of sabalenka that's important because there was always belief from everywhere all all corners that she's going to be a winner but she had to do it until she did it the hard way now this win is kind of a win of a bona fide established top 2 player So I think I, I am with you, but if had this happened in twenty one, or if we go back to all the tape back, I think many people wouldn't believe what happened in Madrid would translate well into Paris. So on that point, uh, Maria Sakri made a semi final here. Uh, what's her report card according to you? Are we about to take her into a shortlist player of you know contenders? Is she far removed from that? What is what is your observation on what transpired in Madrid uh, for Maria? fascinating uh case study socket because you know she had she played some players who um were upset winners uh o- over other opponents like she did not get the toughest draw she did not get the toughest pathway in terms of uh playing uh the highest seeds or the or the most formidable uh clay court players like you know she uh went against uh Bedosa and Bedosa was not playing great uh at this tournament you know Bedosa beat Coco Goff and Coco Goff's not playing great so like that that whole section of the Madrid women's draw um you know you had matches where you you thought hmm maybe this victory is a sign that player A is improving and turning the corner but then you would watch more matches and you'd watch more of the tournament and you'd come to the realization that Oh no, it wasn't about player A turning the corner and getting better. It was more about player B being in a slump. So like Bedosa Goff as a representative example, it was more about Goff's struggles than Bedosa finding something. Um like like neither of those players are playing uh especially well. And so with Sakari then Sakib, I mean it's a really good result for her she definitely uh you know she picked up points and that certainly matters uh you know when you're trying to move up the rankings ladder get a better spot get a better draw so that 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 contains intrinsic value uh for sakari but in terms of uh, the idea that oh like she could be on the cusp of something not buying that like i don't i don't think that her form uh is where it needs to be for her to to receive that kind of of designation. Uh I will say that, you know, by winning a a pile of matches and getting deep into a tournament that certainly gives her a chance to come to Paris. I mean, obviously she's going to play Rome too, but you know, when she eventually gets to Paris, she will have reason to think, all right, maybe this is where I can plant my feet, uh regather and really begin to put the pieces together. in my career after you know losing that semifinal to Kachikova uh 2 years ago you know after having match point you know a, a result that you know it's been hard for her to recover from uh you know how different would her career 
be right now uh, if she had won that match point and made uh, the Roland Garros final. And remember, you know, that final was Krachikova against Pavlyuchenkova. So, like, Sakari would have been favored to beat Pavs uh, if that matchup uh, had taken place. So, you know, it could have been so very different for her. And so, like, I think there's still a, a threshold that Sakari needs to cross. I don't think that, I, I mean, her Madrid result was undeniably very, very good and positive but I don't think it's indicative of the kind of transformation uh, that a lot of people and a lot of her fans really need to see, you know, before saying, aha, she's a top tier contender. I mean, she's certainly in the mix, one of several players that um, you would apply that label to, but being in the mix and being a top tier favorite, those are two different things. And I don't think Sakari is in that top tier conversation. So if you were to, uh, wrap your top five uh, for a power ranking of WTA heading into Rome and then eventually Roland Garros. You've already given three names. So is Bedosa in the short five list for you? Krichikova, who, I mean, uh, who, who do you think uh, rounds up your five top five uh, power players uh, on the eve of Rome? I think, I think, I think Krichikova probably merits inclusion here, if only because she's done it before. Uh, and you know, she's had decent results, not tremendous, but decent results. But the fact that she has that Roland Garros title under her belt, you know, you put her, let's say, let's say just for the sake of a hypothetical that you get Kachikova and Bedosa, uh, or Kachikova and Goff, uh, other players, you know, put them in a round of 16, uh, third set or a quarterfinal third set. I would lean toward Kachikova. Uh, in that kind of situation. Um, but that that's just more representative of anything. Like, we also have to deal with, you know, Anz Jabur. Um, she's been injured. And, of course, you know, Bianca Andrescu got injured. Like, to me, like, in terms of, you, you could uh, put Krachikova in, like, num- the number four or number five slot. But I think the bigger thing, Sakib, I think that, like, no one has forcefully or firmly claimed a fourth or fifth spot. And that's waiting to be seen. And I think Rome might have, might give us a much clearer uh, uh, sense of really who is the foremost challenger to the top three uh, as we head into Paris. I think that's what Rome is going to be good for really on both sides, men and women. You know, we, we know who the top players are, who's going to be right behind them, uh, challenging them in Paris. I think that that's going to be the useful valuable aspect of Rome this year. Uh, another name I want to talk about is before we go on to the men's side is Jesse Pagula. Uh, uh, bonafide top player. Uh, is he a tier two, or tier one? Definitely not tier one because you didn't take her name. Where would you place her uh, as, as far as the clay court importance goes? Can she back her game if the draw opens, if there's an upset? How far can she go? Well, I think I think that the, the, the larger story with Jessica Pagula has not really changed uh, meaningfully. And that's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But it's just like it's, it's, it has remained in place. No real movement up or down. Like she is still a quarterfinal level player at the most important tournaments. And, you know, if you put her up against Shviantek, Sabalenka, Rabakina, like the, the elites are almost certain to beat her but she's very, very likely to take care of virtually 
uh, everyone else. That is basically Jessica Pagula's uh, identity. It's her reputation. It's her track record uh, in women's tennis that she'll beat the players she is supposed to beat, you know, nine times out of ten. But then you put her up against uh, one of the heavyweights, and she has not proven uh, that she can win those kinds of matches. So really, if we're if we're talking about Roland Garros, not about Rome, but about Roland Garros, the simple reality for Pagula is that it, you know I would expect her to make the quarters, and then after that, it's all about you know will someone else be able to bump off Sviantek, Rabakina, Sabalenka. Uh, the high seed in her quarter or in her half uh, to give her a path to the title. I mean, that that's basically the, the read. That's basically um, the, the notebook on uh, Pagula. And, and we'll see if she or other circumstances do anything to change that. All right. All right so Sokka, sure, yeah. Sokka, uh, I've been talking about women's tennis. So let me now turn it around and ask you about the men's tournament. So you could start with the final between Alcaraz and Struff. Uh, which was a very close match and, and a match that Struff really worked hard uh, to, to, to make something of it. And let's note uh, about Struff that you know, he lost the first set in, in three. He lost the first set in three of his main draw matches in Madrid before the final. He lost the first set here. He kept coming back uh, throughout the tournament. You know, he won a three setter against Sitsipas. So, I think the main question, we'll talk about Alcaraz soon enough, Saka, but, you know, with Jan Leonard Struff, you know, this is a guy who, you know, had struggled to put it together on a consistent basis, uh, struggled to, you know, take his talent and his ball striking ability, put it together uh, on in a sustained way. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, he played in the Challengers in, in March. Um, no one was expecting this run. And, and of course, he's a lucky loser. Are you convinced, Sakib, that this is going to be a building block for him? Or do you think that this was one magical fortnight in Madrid that's not going to lead anywhere, that's not going to lead to something bigger down the line? Where would you come down on that fundamental question? It's a very tricky question, right? Because when I was in Israel, me and Skip and a few others, Miguel Siebra, we all were talking, we all were going gaga on, Quentin, Quentin Hollis, the French guy. And since that, he's, I think, only won one out of three matches. I thought he was a guy who who's going to make some quarterfinals. Uh, but, you know, he still has Rome, and maybe he plays in his home country, Lyon, before French Open. So it, it's it's tough to say. And, you know, so Struff cannot take anything away from this week. Uh, lucky loser and all that stuff, because last year he was injured, didn't play the clay season. Needed all the matches, was outside of the top 100. Now his live ranking is, what, 13? No, races, in, in the race, he's 13, and I think live ranking is in the, in the mid-20s. So he'll definitely be seeded, no matter what happens in Rome, because the rankings will be released later. To answer your question, yeah, it's, it's really hard to say. But if purely going by the ball striking in Madrid, not many courts play like Madrid, especially on clay, when he was taking time away from Carlos Alcaraz, who himself is extremely special, you know, in each way, like his defense, his his, uh, his his ability to chase down balls, and then on on the most remotest and the most neutral of balls, he can create offense with so much ease. So I think my, my highlight for the match was first two games. I want to tweet about happened quickly. Struff was hitting the cover of the ball. Then I tagged you and Andrew. By the time I think game three or game four was already in play, 
He was really hitting so many good balls, but Carlos Alcaraz being Alcaraz, he was up 2-0. And there was a there was a point where I think Struff must have hit in the second game, I think four or five great shots to win a point. Uh, and at that point, you've seen this with Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, and all the great players. You know, uh, someone comes, uh, underdog comes all guns blazing and is hitting the cover of the ball and boom, it's 4-1. And then the 6-3, 6-3, shake hands, well played, right? But Struff didn't go away. Uh, he had three break points to make it five all in the first set against Alcaraz. And Andy Roddick and Jim Courier were talking that as great as Alcaraz is, he was hitting the ball so big, he took time away from Carlos. And that's why that was, and, and I'm sure a lot of players who can hit big are taking note that you come to the net, you hit big, hits at the center, and then overpower him and then create your volleys. It's easier said, you know, said than done because Carlos is Carlos in a, in a year and a half sample size. He's already, you know, elevated his comparisons, you know, with with the big three players, and he's clearly the standout player of his generation, even better prospect than the Medvedev, Sitsipas, Zverev class. It's, it's, you know, no surprise there. But for Struff, I think uh, interesting point would be what he can do during the grass season, and of course French Open, if uh, you know he can find a permanent residency in the top thirty-two, top twenty. Uh, ranking range. We are going to see more of him. His game is very old school. I like anyone who comes to the net. He hits really big on both things, moves extremely well, like Jim Curry calls him, the hybrid players. He's 6-5 or 6-6. The guy moves really well, and this week is going to serve a lot of confidence. But I'm going to just say hold if we are expecting this kind of a run again. Nothing to take away from John Leonard Struff, but I need to see it more at a sustained level. Can he he play like this... uh, after Wimbledon uh, on the hardcore season, yeah, then definitely we can have a conversation. But anyone who's going to stretch this version of Carlos Alcaraz with the home crowd in Madrid watching and played one of the best finals of the year, very entertaining match today. So uh, I I won't go against anyone who's very hopeful after this, but I'm going to be a bit conservative and say, hold, let's see what the next three, four tournaments hold out for the German. Uh, How do you see it? I think it has to be wait and see because Madrid, you know, is so unique in terms of uh, playing conditions. And the other thing is that, you know, it's not as though he won his, he won early in Madrid. He lost to Karatsev uh, and, 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 but, but got, you know, a lottery ticket that he was able to cash in. So I, I definitely, we need to, we need to see Struff build on this. Now he has the potential, but we need to see actual deliverables. We need to see, some proof before we think, aha, like this guy's going to take off. Uh, very, very much of the wait and see mindset uh, with Struff. All right, now to the guy who defeated Struff in the final. So, you know, Sakib, uh, and I mentioned this briefly earlier, it's not as though Alcaraz was just beating guys one and two, you know, in 58 minutes. That's not how this fortnight went for him. You know, Hatchinoff put up a battle. Uh, he had some other real uh, fights uh, at various points uh, in this Madrid tournament. I mean, so what what do we make of that in terms of saying uh, that Alcaraz is really uh, evolving as a player? Do we do we talk about how you know it didn't all click for him, or do we talk about how whenever something went negative, he always found a response to it? Maybe it's a little of both. Maybe there's something in between. Um, you know, just do you come away with the belief that like Alcaraz is the obvious favorite uh, for Roland Garros, given Rafa's uh, injuries and also Djokovic's 
elbow issue, or do you think, ah, yeah, like there are still signs of some mental frailty, still signs that he might get a little too anxious in the heat of the moment, you know, the way he did against Zverev last year. So there's an optimist case and there's a pessimist's case for Alcaraz. How would you size that up? Uh, so I'll take it as two questions. First, I'll talk about Madrid. You know, in, in a sample size, that's dating only a year and a half if you take his ascent to the top player. Uh, he, he's won now 21 matches in Spain. Uh, consecutive last loss coming to Nadal in 21 edition of Madrid, where she lost, I think, one and two. So, I mean, look, Matt, you, you've been writing about sport and I've been around you for like five years and Andrew and and Mert. So the only thing I've said before, uh, I'm still a fan, uh, you know, slash analyst. I do get excited when I see a run like Quentin Hollis or, you know, even uh, a Coda run in, in Melbourne. Uh, but at the same time, I try to play the whole policy. Like, don't get excited or swept by the moment or Andy Roddick would say be a victim of the moment. But at this guy, I mean, come on. I mean, the numbers are not lying at all. He's dominant, right? He already has a very dominant record against Stefano Sissipas. He beat the in-form hardcore player, Daniel Medvedev, manhandled him in Madrid, and uh, sorry, in Indian Wells. Absolutely destroyed Zverev. You know, some might say Zverev is still not back, but he still would have won against a lot of players that day. But he didn't even come close to Alcaraz. And Zverev says Madrid is his best court. Numbers back him up. But in two matches against Carlos, last year's final and this year's fourth round, Zverev won 14 points on Alcaraz's serve. So these are scary numbers. And these guys like Sitsipas, Zverev and Medvedev are world-class players in their own rights who probably will have a lot of say in the coming years in bigger tournaments outcome. But Carlos Alcaraz has become this runaway uh, favorite against his age group and slightly older age group. Not to say the other three guys I mentioned or Holger Rune or Sinner won't beat him. But right now, it's safe to say if it's not Djokovic, Alcaraz is favored to beat most players when he takes on the court. And the second part is going to your home tournament, Barcelona, you know, it might be a cliched thing. I was watching the Boris Becker documentary on Apple yesterday, and I've forgotten how much I respected the guy or became a fan of him. But to do it as a teenager and quickly becoming uh, a hunted proposition in a one-to-one, you know, man-to-man sport like tennis, individual sport, it's not easy. In team sports, you could be surrounded by teammates. I'm not saying phenoms and prodigies don't flourish in team sports. LeBron and other cricketers could be examples. But I think to do it on a man-to-man sport where you are alone, I think it's uh, it's pretty phenomenal. And he's he's living this he's living this title of the favorite. Of course, Novak Djokovic is the best player. Uh, you know, I, I believe that if his elbow uh, is hundred percent, I think that's a match we all want. But uh, if you take Djokovic out on hard courts and Wimbledon, you know, Alcaraz is looking like the guy who's going to be the favorite French Open. And there's nothing to take away Nadal from Nadal as well. We will talk about him. But for the first time, Nadal's gonna has to either play the week before Roland Garros, or he's gonna come into Roland Garros if he decides to. His body allows him to compete at a level where he can win the tournament. We are at new waters. But Carlos Alcaraz, I think week in week out, is living the role of a favorite. The other only concern I have is sometimes it looks like he comes in a tournament with a niggle, and then he you could see the next week is is one too many matches. Uh, he's you know he's he's still finding I think the limits of his body. But definitely, I think you can make a case for him either way as a top two, top three favorite, if not the top favorite at Roland Garros. Uh, I would like to see Djokovic in Rome and then maybe answer that question uh, more accurately. 
because what we have seen of Djokovic is a bit of a compromise, you know, version. He would not be losing to, with all due respect to Dusan Lajovic in a home tournament, you know. And Djokovic, you know, maybe could have thrown in the towel, but, you know, it's his home tournament. He still finished that match, so kudos to him. But I would love to see a fully healthy Novak Djokovic in Rome. And then maybe in a preview show or a Twitter space, we can talk about the prospect of French Open. And, of course, Nadal's the X factor if he does come back in. So let me throw this back to you uh, with an added question. Andy Roddick said, Carlos Alcaraz is the most complete 19-year-old. And I think I see what he's saying. He's not saying he's better than the big three. But sometimes the big three fans are the biggest currency out there. You know, the Federer fans, Djokovic fans, Nadal fans, they make the sport richer. But it's also a very touchy topic when you say, how can he be better? And when Roddick didn't say he's better than those guys, how do you see that comment in isolation? And are you also objectively thinking he's able to do as a 20 or 19-year-old what Federer, Nadal, Djokovic or the other greats like Sampras weren't able to do? Well, you know, when you compare, uh, when you compare the big three, you know, it's obvious that Rafa, you know, was the best uh, late teenage player, that Rafa was the guy of those three uh, to figure out how to play tennis at an elite level, you know, sooner uh, th- th- than, than the others. That, you know, 19-year-old Rafa, um, you know, was able to win uh, Roland Garros in 2005 and launch his uh, French Open empire. Uh, his uh, Chatrier Cathedral, his Citadel. Um, so, like, Nadal understood how to play tennis better and more consistently at an earlier age than Federer or Djokovic. But you then look at 19-year-old Nadal and remembering how he played, it's not as though he did all the different things that Carlos Alcaraz does, right? And, and, and in, in many ways, what worked for Nadal as a late teenager, and, and, and it was really... A, a core part of his early career uh, success under coach Tony Nadal is being able to take a few things and do them really, really well very, on a repeated basis. It was precisely that Nadal would stick to a core plan, you know, based on just a few things, defense, you know, and specifically his defensive uh, lefty forehand with the top spin, you know, just getting all those balls back from Federer, also Djokovic, you know, just flick that defensive forehand with topspin, you know, about near the baseline to reset the point, um, you know, being able to use that lefty can opener serve uh, to the ad side, um, just having a few cornerstone shots with deep married with defense, work ethic, uh, focus, intensity, professionalism. And that was it, like just doing those few things well you know, was most of really the formula for Nadal. It's not as though he needed the drop shots. It's not as though he needed uh, the things that we see Alcaraz do. So this is not an implied criticism of Nadal or or, or even like any, in any way meant to suggest that like his game was not sufficient. It, it absolutely was sufficient. Uh, it was like it was the right approach to have simplicity, tactical simplicity, um, because like it was a way for Nadal to say, hey, here's what I do best, Roger. Uh, you know, you, I dare you to try and break it down, and Federer couldn't break it down. It was Federer who needed to to adjust and change, not Rafa. Um, but but the point being that Rafa, you know, rested on a few core pillars. With Alcaraz, it is different. Like it's not as though he does rest on any one or two core pillars. It's that he's always doing something different. Now you could say maybe that like he 
relies on the drop shot on especially on clay that like that is a centerpiece of his game i mean fair point but it's more about he can hit the ball so hard uh to all parts of the court he has a serve he has uh, a lot of different tools and it's it's precisely because he has all these different tools that the drop shot becomes effective like he really rips the ball great technique great pace uh, you know, flat or top spin from various positions. That's what makes the drop shot so effective is that you're, you're, you are uh, thinking about, uh-oh, he's going to really light into this forehand or backhand. Uh, I have to be, you know, back enough in the court. I have to be central enough uh, behind the baseline. And that's exactly when he can then unfurl the drop shot to great effect. So, like, when Roddick says he's the most complete player, I mean, if you adjust for the modern era and the ability of modern racket and string technology to manipulate the ball, and when you can count, account for how physical contemporary tennis is, that might be true, what Roddick says. I would say, that, however, that you know, uh, when you think about... Let me interfere. Uh, he says he's the most complete 19-year-old. So I thought I... I, I hope I said yeah, that. 19-year-old. Yeah, okay. Sure. Yes. Yeah, you did say that. That is how you presented Roddick's quote. Um, when when talking about that, like a 19-year-old John McEnroe was a pretty complete player because you had the net game, you had a, a very formidable uh, serve, uh, you had a player with a lot of different components, and you know because racket and string technology weren't nearly as uh, evolved in the late 1970s, uh, as they are now, you know, you could get into a conversation about whether Alcaraz or someone such as Johnny Mack uh, was the more, better, more complete uh, 19-year-old player. So I think that is worth mentioning as a conversation point. But I think in terms of handling the physicality and the demands of today's game and, and realizing just how hard uh, players can hit the tennis ball today and being able to deal with all that power to deal with the force that is part of modern tennis it's it's hard to argue with Roddick's contention that that Alcaraz is the most complete 19 year old uh, we've seen in tennis sure so let me you know talk about a couple other players and pose them as questions to you uh what have you seen for the season so far I know we are already uh, we've completed five weeks of clay tennis four tournaments few champions have been crowned Andre Rublev have been consistent uh, Karan Hachanov has been playing well. Uh, is Yannick Sinner someone you want to pair with Carlos Alcaraz, or you still see there's a lot of distance between them? Because every time they take on the court, they produce these great matchups. They're the rivalry of the future. And Stefano Tsitsipas' loss against Yalon Struff is a worrisome loss because nothing to take away from Struff. Uh, you know, Tsitsipas is a very accomplished clay court player. And coming back from a shoulder injury, most of us thought he would back his Barcelona final by going all the way, at least to the final in Madrid. So your overall assessment of the men's side, uh, the clay action you've seen so far, uh, any any players, you know, you know, you want to talk about leading my examples as an overall question? Well, you know, Sinner wasn't able to play in Madrid and probably a good decision because you don't want to uh, overwork yourself. Uh, Sinner, you know, Sinner needs to manage his body, you know, while he tries to develop more more strength, more muscle mass. You know, he, he's been, you know, a string bean in, in previous years. 
Uh, so you don't want to run yourself into the ground. You also want to be healthy for Rome, your home nation uh, tournament. So probably a good decision all in all. And I would also say that, you know, with Sitsipas and other players failing to go deep into this tournament, the center did not pay a big price in terms of rankings points. You know, he did not, he did not lose a significant added amount of ground to the other players he's battling uh, in terms of, uh, you know, top eight, top four, those uh, particular uh, pursuits uh, for rankings points. Um, So, so, you know, with with center, the, the, the reality is pretty simple. When he gets into a close match against an elite, comparably talented player, can he close the deal? Like he's come close so many times. Obviously, at the majors at multiple occasions last year. And then, of course, we saw in Monte Carlo against Runa. You know, it was a match right there, able to be won, couldn't win it. Uh, he has to be able to win those kinds of matches against his peers in the top 10 uh, and, and for him to be, begin to believe at that higher level that he will need to cross the threshold uh, and reach a higher level. At the majors, uh, I think, you know, the, the real disappointment here, and you alluded to it, was Sitsipas. that, you know, the draw really opened up for him on, on his uh, side of the draw. Like, you know, he he really missed a chance to uh, pack on the points uh, and solidify himself in the in the top tier uh, of the rankings. This was a real missed opportunity for him. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I then turn this back to you, Sakib, I think in terms of a player comparison and like, you know, which guy are you, uh, higher on, which guy are you more, uh, optimistic about going forward, uh, heading into Rome and also, uh, the French open to me, the most fascinating comparison is Runa or Sitsipas. Uh, I, I think, you know, where people put those two players is is a point of interest and fascination for me because you know Sinner he's fallen short in so many big matches that I think you definitely have to put him a notch below uh, Runa and Sitsipas. But in terms of where you put Runa and Sitsipas themselves uh, relative to Alcaraz, relative to Djokovic, I think that is a much more interesting and more specifically, it's a fluid conversation. Like I don't think it's obvious. Uh, what the power balance is there. So, like, if I was to say, I'm okay, I'm going to give you either a Runa stock package or a Sitsipas uh, stock package heading into Rome and Paris, which player's stock are you buying, if if either one of them? Okay, so I'm going to, again, try to tackle it um, in a couple of steps. So when we were talking about the power rankings or Tier 1, Tier 2 with Steve Flink and Gil Gross, I've revised them. So Nadal's still out of the picture because he hasn't played. So Alcaraz and a healthy Djokovic without the elbow are your two tier one players. But I'll slightly disagree with you. I'll still put Yannick Sinner in my tier two along with Sissipas and and Holger Runa. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Because, you know, I always believe, you know, in a 128 or 96 or 56 draw, you play the field. Their tennis is all about matchups. Eventually, we've been spoiled or we've been more accustomed to big matches in the big three era. So we expect the big players to reach the Saturday semifinal and Sunday final, and, you know, and the rivalries and the storybook endings, all that's good. But Sinner's also consistent. 
adding to your point, quarters at Wimbledon against Djokovic, two sets to love lead, two sets to one, I think, against Alcaraz, if I'm not mistaken, in New York. So I think he's he's beating convincingly the players below him. And uh, and he's also not able to land a big title, you know, including the Masters 1000. So I'm sure pressure in the moment caught up to him. So I'll, you know, I'll give him that benefit. I still think his maturation point is very near and his serve has improved. They've modified, you know, a few changes. His forehand is a beast. My only concern is, you know, when I talk to Nick Lester, if his body is close to maturation, his game seems to be there, but he does get injured more often than anyone not named Nishikori and Raonic. And that's a concern because if you want to be contending for these big titles, you need to be fully healthy. And his injuries, I was talking to Gilcrows, are different than Alcaraz. Alcaraz overplays and gets hurt. This guy, you know, I hate to say that to a world of a world-class tennis player, it seems like he's still coming into his own. I don't want to use the word brittle, but his his frame is still, I think, finding its own limits. Alcaraz pushes the button and gets injured. He, I think, still doesn't know what the maximum, uh, from my point and humble point, I, I could be wrong, what his full potential is. So I'll put him there. Now to your bigger question. Look, overall, I'm already a big fan of Holger Runa. I think the guy is uh, box office. And I sometimes feel bad he's 19 or whatever, he's 20. People are really, you know, we are all judging him, uh, you know, that he has too much personality. He needs to tone it down. But you know what? He's the first or the last guy to play on the men's tour with big men, older men, and they are playing for money. Boris Becker did it. Leighton Hewitt did it. Andy Roddick did it. Now they're all respected names. But these guys were not seen by the senior peers very kindly. Like McIndoe told Becker famously in a match in Stratton Mountain, maybe an exhibition, win something big, will you, before you start complaining. And Boris wins Wimbledon three months later. And similarly, Leighton Hewitt and Chela, Leighton Hewitt and Kanyas, Leighton Hewitt and Nalbandian, the animosity with the Argentines. There were a few occasions, there was literally a, no handshake or a bare handshake. But then Hewitt won two Grand Slams, right? So he came with his maturation point. So I know you didn't ask me for this, but I, I'm just trying to give a context. I see... Uh, since Vavrinka, the Bursi match, a lot of people uh, are not kind to Runa. My first reaction was like this. Yeah, what is he talking about? Then I realized, you know what? They play tennis for money. He's not looking for Vavrinka or anyone who's beating like Zverev or Tsitsipas as a big brother or mentor. He's out there to take lunch off their table to compete for the best or the biggest prizes. And, you know, granted, he's 19, but he's going to find his way. So let's let's all back off a little bit. What What were we doing when we were 19? You know, it's like one of those things. I was not even the best in my own household when I was 19 at anything. Forget about like trying to be a top eight tennis player. So I have more, I'm more lenient there. I'm not saying people who are not, it's wrong, but I would say, you know, give him the benefit. The guy has a box office tennis appeal. And now to your question, yeah, he's definitely, uh, Matt doesn't see many holes right now in his overall, you know, what his uh, trajectory is going to be. I think it's very linear all the way to the top. If there's no injuries, he's a bigger stock than Sissipas. But for this French Open, Sissipas is clearly, to me, one of the best clay court players. Granted, he hasn't beaten Holger Runa and uh, Carlos Alcaraz yet in head-to-heads, but I think he's still top four, top five clay court tennis uh, you know, exponent out there. Someone takes it on Alcaraz. Djokovic is playing with an injury. I like Sissipas' chances to win the whole thing because he fares decently against the draw. He's figured out a formula to beat the field on clay consistently to Monte Carlo you know, uh, titles. French Open final, French Open semis. The guy knows how to play on the surface. But in a star-studded field, if he's playing against like Carlos Alcaraz or a healthy Djokovic or a healthy Nadal or even a Holger Runa, uh, I don't know if I like his chance in a best of five. But maybe, maybe Holger Runa will 
is still maybe a major or two away to figure out uh, what it means to make a deep run in a best of five major. So, so my answer is this. Yeah, I think they're all in this together, uh, a, a tier two. But uh, overall, I think I'm much stronger believer in Holger Runa to to be challenging Carlos Alcaraz in a not so distant future, and Yannick Sinner and Korda being in the mix. So let me throw this back to you. Uh, you know, you've covered sport a lot, especially NBA. You know, like there's we, 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 that was my talk to someone. We celebrated Kobe Bryant dunking in the face of you know the Bulls of the Utah Jazz when he was young. Why are we so apprehensive when Holger Runa fist pump or you know talks or stares down a legend or stares down a, a Grand Slam champion? At that point, he's a competitor. So do you really care if the respect is shown or not, or that's not, that's a non-factor for you? You know, uh, there are tennis with an accent listeners uh, in countries other than the United States, and, and they might not be aware of this, but just to kind of draw the comparison here, you know, in some uh, United States uh, state legislatures, you know, in places like uh, Tennessee and Montana, um, you've had uh, state legislators, lawmakers, uh, expelled for what's called decorum. You know, their behavior has not been part of the decorum one expects of a state legislator. And, you know, so like they're basically their manners were improper. Their behavior uh, was was inappropriate in terms of, you know, like what should get an elected official expelled. And hey, I'm taking this to tennis very soon. But but just to kind of illustrate the larger dynamics here, a legislator should be expelled for, you know, taking a bribe, you know, criminal unlawful conduct being corrupt uh you know being violent you know like domestic violence uh you know something really serious all right that that's kind of the point and so to draw the comparison with Holger Runa okay he's not going to win any awards for decorum but okay he's not cheating all right he's not taking steroids you know he's not uh you know He's not fixing matches, you know, he's not, he's not part of a betting scandal. Like, you know, there are serious things athletes, public figures do, which should get them canceled or kicked out of certain bodies or make them ineligible for certain rewards, whatever. And weren't though these are these are not any of the things we're talking about with Holger Runa, right? This is just he's a he's a motive, uh, he's in your face. You know, he, he's a he's a young athlete with with a lot of belief in himself. And it translates to not really respecting, you know, not being uh, uh, one could say maybe civil or, or um, polite uh, in the ways that a lot of people expect. But like that is not a grave sin. That is a young athlete just being emotive. And like we saw this with Novak Djokovic, too. Right. We saw it in his when he was. Uh, early in his career, 2006, 2007, 2008, those years. And like, all right, people have people have the right to, you know, get annoyed at that and to be put off by that and might not have been endearing. It might not have been their cup of tea, but spare me with the pearl clutching about how awful it is or how terrible uh, behavior it is. That's not terrible behavior. Cheating, being a jerk, being abusive, being corrupt, those are terrible things. And that is the perspective that we need to have for Holger Runa and really 
anyone else uh, we can put in a similar vein. Hi, Matt. So another question that we sh- I shouldn't forget, I want your view, because since we haven't talked at this forum in a while, Taylor Fritz has become a bona fide top player. I mean, he's impressive on clay. Of course, someone say, is he winning a t- title anytime soon? That's yet to be determined. I say it's a tall order, but he definitely seems like he belongs there, right? His win over Sissipas in Monte Carlo. He had a couple of good rounds in Madrid. Uh, what do you make of his chances and what tier are you placing him? Uh, is he is he an outside contender to go deep in Roland Garros? I think Taylor Fritz is basically an American version of Yannick Sinner. I, I think they, the two of them, if you think about it, and you study their results in big tournaments over the past two years, like they have written very similar stories. Like Fritz had Djokovic on the ropes uh, at the Australian Open and it let him get away. Sinner's done the same thing. Fritz had Nadal on the ropes uh, at Wimbledon, uh, you know, but just Sinner had, had Djokovic in trouble, uh, you know, let, let him get away. So, you know, Fritz and Sinner, they've both had very significant bright lights, big stage moments in the past two years where they were on the cusp you know, they were one set away from doing something really special, really important, really transformative, and they couldn't do it. And so they have both come close uh, to transforming their careers in highly positive ways, but haven't crossed the threshold. And so in that sense, you know, like they've made real progress. Like Sinner look, is definitely a better tennis player now uh, than he was 12 months ago. Darren Cahill doing a great job with him, as you would expect. Like you, you can see measures of evolution, measures of uh, advancement, but you know, at a at a certain point, like you can get all the coaching in the world, you can have the best game plan, and you can be better in technique. You know, the Taylor Fritz, like his his backhand does not break down the way it does for so many other American players who are just a serve and a forehand and nothing else. The like the Fritz backhand is a steadier shot. Than it used to be. You're seeing holistic uh, improvement from him in ways that you don't see from most of the other uh, Americans. Like Seb Court is kind of a separate matter because he's been injured. You know, he just needs to get back into form after an injury. Like he's always had a quality backhand, but Fritz really has separated himself from most of the crowd in American men's tennis because his his overall backhand and ground stroke technique. Uh, also, his defense, like they've they've held up better than a lot of his American peers. Um, so, like there has been improvement, as has been the case with Sinner. But at some point, the coach can't do it for you. And that's the beauty of tennis. You have to climb uh, that final stretch of the mountain. You have to walk over those hot coals. You need to figure out how to win that defining match, which you know is important. You know, and you have the voices in your head reminding you just how big a moment this is. Can you quiet yourself? Can you find the inner peace to just gather yourself, suck it up, and get it done? Taylor Fritz really is the American Yannick Sinner. He and Sinner are both really uh, in very similar situations in, in terms of, like, they're, they've done a lot. They've improved. They're, you know, they're in the, in the top 15, and it's, and it's all there for them. Like, they have the potential. They just have to take that final step, beating the big dogs in a really close uh, main main event match. And until they do that, they're they're going to be you know limited in terms of you know what their ceiling is. 
All right, so let's wrap this up. Last question. So out of these three players, who has the most to prove in the coming few weeks leading up to Roland Garros? Uh, Rude won the title in Estoril, but since then has been a pale shadow of what he he looked like on clay last year. Zverev is already four or five months back from his injury. Andrew thinks he's 75% of his game. And then there's Felix Ogialassim. And who do you think has the more, most to prove? a question we used to have in our tennis for the Knacks and write-ups. How do you size these three up uh, leading up to French Open? Uh, it's definitely not Zverev, you know, because, like, he's been there before. So, like, if, if he doesn't do much in Rome, well, okay, you go to Paris or maybe you play Geneva, Lyon, get some more matches, and you just try to build your fitness base, and then you get there and, like, Zverev can play his way into form uh, in the first week of the tournament, you know, he, like he, he plays a five setter. We, we've, we've seen him do that. Like Zverev can just, you know, bide his time and be patient with himself, uh, in terms of what he needs to do. So he de- Zverev definitely doesn't have much to prove, uh, heading into Roland Garros. Now maybe, you know, pick up some form, pick up some matches, maybe that, but like Rude and Felix, they both have a lot to prove, right? Because they've both been, They've both been kicked around by the tour. They've both been thrown around like a dirty, dirty old rag. Uh, they both have taken some shots and they haven't punched back. They need to show, hey, I'm here to, I'm here to contend. Uh, I'm here to, to go against the big dogs uh, and stand up for myself. So, like, like I don't, I don't think there's really even a meaningful uh, distinction between the two. Like, I, there, there's not really much daylight between the two both of them had good french opens uh last year and and you know both you know seem both ended 2022 seemingly poised for bigger and better things uh in 2023 and it hasn't happened that way so really they both have a lot to prove i guess if you if you if you put a gun to my head and you said well matt you have to choose one of the two who would it be it would be rude simply because you know he made the roland garros final and he made the uh he made the uh, U.S. Open final as well. So just the fact that Rude has risen higher, specifically at Roland Garros, okay, you, if you had to choose, and you can't just say it's a tie between him and Felix, all right, you take Rude. But fundamentally, both have a, an enormous amount uh, to prove, and they really do need Rome uh, to build up some confidence before we get to Paris. If they both crash out early in Rome, it's really hard to just say, oh, they can flip the switch because they don't have experience flipping the switch. That's not like they haven't been able to do what, you know, Nadal and Djokovic and, and, uh, and team and, and others have been able to do, you know, in terms of, you know, you go through some rocky patches, but Hey, you're still a big dog. You can get to Paris. You can play your way into form in the first week. Rude and Felix do not have those track records. So they're both really fundamentally in the same spot as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think I uh, should have been a little more mindful of my question. Felix has only played one clay court match in the season because he was injured for Monte Carlo. He lost the uh, Dusan Lajovic first round, I think, first match uh, in Madrid. But I think a larger point stands to also. Big week coming up for Ogialisim. If he's healthy, he needs to rack up a couple of wins going into Paris because as a top player, ideally, you don't want to play in Lyon or Geneva to to look for matches. So, Matt, that's, uh, I think, one hour, 10 minutes we recorded, close to it. I think uh, good to have you back, good to do this and let's uh, do a Twitter space soon uh, during the first few days of Rome to warm, warm ourselves up for Rome and then French Open eventually. Nice talking to you after a while. You, you got it, Saket. 